This is an RNZ podcast. Tēnā koutou katoa, I'm Philippa Tolley and welcome to Insight. This week, the resurgence of rheumatic fever. A hundred years ago, wards and wealthy countries were filling up with young people suffering from severe rheumatic heart disease. Now, most well-off countries have all but rid themselves of this autoimmune illness, but not New Zealand. Attempts, including a health campaign costing $65 million, have done little to bring about change. So if a big campaign can't achieve a permanent reduction, what will? And how many people will end up with lifelong and sometimes life-limiting heart damage? One of those living with the burden of rheumatic fever is Joseph Tuala. He's now 45 and a father to four children. But back in the 80s, he was a primary school pupil when he suffered his first bout. He remembers the sore throat and aching joints. But the thing that really sticks in his mind is when, as a rugby-mad kid, he was tackled and stayed down. When I couldn't get up and it was hard for me to walk, that's when the alarm bells kind of went off. And I went to my family doctor and he ran some tests and then I think he suspected that it might have been rheumatic fever and that was the first time we'd ever heard of rheumatic fever. And it was a bit of a shock so he was telling us everything about it and it's a bit much to take in as a little kid. Rheumatic fever happens when the body turns on itself after being triggered by a strep infection such as a sore throat. Sometimes the autoimmune response causes rheumatic heart disease. Joe was in hospital for several months, being treated with penicillin and bed rest in an effort to prevent heart damage. But after a year, the sore throat was back. I got it again. I started feeling the same symptoms and then they said, oh yeah, you got rheumatic fever again. So it's back into hospital for round two and stayed in hospital again for uh, probably the same time, about just over a month or nearly two months. So you were little then. What was it like to be in hospital for such a long time? Did you really understand what was going on? No. no um, I, was, I was young and, you know, wanting to be active, but getting reduced to bed rest and then being so far away from my family was a bit hard. Being an eight-year-old kid and then... So my parents used to... Both my parents were working at the time and I had three other siblings for them to look after. So... They couldn't come and see me in, in town every time, so I used to call them and ask them if they were coming in, and then they'd tell me, oh, no, some we can't come in, so they've got a couple of things on. And it wasn't to be the last time. Two years later, it was the whole thing all over again. I knew the draw by then, hospitalised, and, and I you know, kind of like um, wasn't looking forward to it. It was the third time. And I didn't really want to go. I'd, I'd try to lie to my parents and tell them, oh, now nah, I'm all right. It's, it's not. But, you know, my parents by that time already knew, like, oh, now, nah, son, it's the same. So got hospitalised. I think the third time was the hardest because I spent Christmas in the hospital. What followed was several decades of monthly painful penicillin injections that doctors decided would be necessary in Joe's case right up to the age of 35. But he seemed to have escaped from the next stage of the illness, rheumatic heart disease. I, you know, through the three times I got rheumatic fever, the 
I was always getting heart checkups, and they, they said I had no heart damage or valve damage. And they said, oh, you're pretty lucky because not a lot of kids get it three times and end up having no heart damage. Yeah, but um, yeah, as an adult, I um, developed heart failure. And the doctors didn't really know what caused the heart failure. But yeah, some of the doctors are thinking maybe it's just a delay from the aromatic fever. Joe then tried to take matters into his own hands, improving his health and getting himself in better physical shape. About a year ago, I was at the gym, so I've been going to the gym and steadily losing weight, getting my weight down to help my situation. And um, I had a cardiac event. I, yeah, so I passed out during my workout and I woke up and, and was getting CPR done to me. And it was a bit of a shock. So I went into hospital and I had to have a defib pacemaker inserted. So yeah, that's that's been a bit of a bit of a mission <laughs> and a bit of something to get my head around, but you know I'm glad to still be here. <laughs> my heart's still beating. <laughs> mm. Great there was somebody there who knew what to do. Yeah, exactly. So what have the doctor has told you will happen now? So you've got the, the pacemaker in. Yep. Um, so I think further on down the track, they want me to get my weight right down. So I have to get down under 100 kgs and then I'll be considered for heart transplant. He says his illness has been a huge burden on him and his family. Yeah, it's been hard on my family, yeah. My partner, my kids, it's been a bit hard for them and hard for me trying to explain, you know, what's been happening and yeah, it's just been like a snowball effect. I'm just, just going to continue to try and better myself and get well, yeah. And what about your children when they get a cough? Or a cold? Yeah, um, my partner and I were really proactive when my kids get a sore throat because I know I, I do not want my kids to go through what I went through. So if they got a sore throat or any of the symptoms, I, I panicked straight away and I said, oh, maybe you should get it checked out because I don't want them to get rheumatic fever with my history of rheumatic fever. Last year, the number of people who had their first bout of rheumatic fever hit 188, up 33 on the year before, and close to the highest numbers in more than a decade. Of all those who go on to suffer rheumatic heart disease, around 120 people die each year. For Michael Baker, a professor of public health at Otago University in Wellington, it's shameful that New Zealand still has this disease. Most high-income countries like um, the UK, the US, Canada, they stopped reporting this disease entirely in the 50s and 60s because it basically vanished. And if you talk to doctors who come to New Zealand, they are astounded that we have this disease. Professor Baker says the illness now almost exclusively affects Māori and Pacific children and no other disease shows such stark inequality. Acute rheumatic fever is not going away in New Zealand despite a very large, expensive prevention programme um, and if anything, uh, rates are rising at the moment. We had more cases last year than we had for, I think, about a decade. So that is a seri serious problem. And 
they, those people who get acute rheumatic fever, many of them do have um, heart damage as a result. And we're seeing, for example, around 50 cases a year of people diagnosed with rheumatic heart disease admitted to hospital every year, and they're under 40. So these are relatively young people who are going into hospital and they're found to have damaged their heart valves to the point where they're, they're said to have rheumatic heart disease. And that has long-term implications for their health in terms of drug treatment, regular antibiotic injections and so on. And it, it is life-shortening. Between 2012 and 2017, there was a big push to detect strep A throat infections through clinics at school and to generally raise awareness of the importance of going to the doctor. The campaign under the Better Public Services banner cost $65 million, and while it achieved some temporary reduction in cases, it never hit all its targets, even in places where it seemed to be working, the gains haven't been sustainable. Molly Lepa Ungosi understands how difficult it can be to know when urgent medical attention is needed. Walking into her Mount Roskill home, the front room is dominated by a huge portrait above the fireplace of her teenage brother grinning. The painting is surrounded by photos of him with his family and a string of shells hung in a heart shape. Molly is the eldest of a family of four. Her dad is Samoan and her mum is Tongan. She has two younger sisters and her younger brother Tofi the boy in the portrait, was the baby of the family. 18 months ago, he died of rheumatic heart disease after collapsing at school. Tofi Tualupe was just 15 years old. He'd been unwell, but he'd been complaining of a sore stomach, not a sore throat. Tofi didn't want to go to the doctor. Instead, he ended up in hospital. And it was just him and mum at home. Him, mum and dad, they were at home. They said they were in the kitchen, like, just, you know making food to eat and then dad um, said that he just happened to turn and it was when because Tuffy um, every time he had a like he would cough that cough it, you could tell it was like a lot of pressure on his chest so my dad said he coughed and it was like coughing coughing he was going to chuck but by the time he turned um, he collapsed dad had to call the ambulance ambulance came and took him straight to um, emergency. When we found out Tofi had rheumatic fever, they had told us um, the muscles around had died and one of his valves like was damaged. So they told us that if we had brought Tofi in earlier, it wouldn't end up like that. So his valve would be like, they'll be able to just fix it. How did that make you feel? It was it was sad, because, you know, I felt sad, like, my parents as well. You know, my brother, he was a good boy. You know, just knowing the type of person he was, and yet he's been hit with this, like, I used to think, why? It's so unfair, especially being he's the baby of our family. Surgery was needed to replace one of his heart valves, but it was touch and go. Because they had told us about Tuffy's condition and the, the size he was, the doctor told us it's, um, it was like a 80-20, um, that if he was to, um, they weren't sure if he would make it 
after surgery or if he did make it, they don't know how long um, he would, you know, how, how many days, months or years he would have after, just all depending because of his size and because of how weak his heart was. Molly explains that Tofi did pull through surgery but had to spend considerable time in hospital. He was told to lose weight to get himself ready for a heart transplant. Keen to get back amongst his friends, Tofi went back to school, but only weeks later he collapsed in class. His family was called and they followed the ambulance until it stopped. And then we pulled up, they walked out, they saw us. The doctor came asking where my mum was. So I told doctor she's in the car, but I had to warn the doctor that she has heart problems as well. So the doctor said, you know, she'll be fine because they're all there. And I said, okay. And then they didn't really have to tell us that Tofi was gone. My mum ended up saying it. So he had explained that they had been doing CPR, like uh, his heart will beat and then they'll slowly die out and then they'll, you know, do it again and then they'll beat again and slowly die. And then they said they did it for an hour. So then mum just kind of stopped the doctor and, and just said to her, oh, is my son gone? And the doctor just nodded his head. Molly says she tells people all the time to get things checked out, even if it's not a sore throat, but a sore stomach or back. And she says go back to the doctor if things don't get better. It's that lack of complete understanding over how best to prevent rheumatic fever that has sparked new research. Professor Baker is part of a team exploring what works effectively and says that may mean looking further than just sore throats. From the risk factor study, we also know that, that family history is really important as a risk factor, so we may be able to do a far more targeted approach. The other thing that we're investigating at the moment is we have a Health Research Council project which is um, following up a 1,000 children who've had various forms of group A strep infection of the throat and the skin to see if actually skin infection may be a really important thing to treat. Michael Baker says there are problems with getting patients to take the whole course of antibiotics they've been prescribed, and international studies show that using a one-off injection straight away might be a more effective option. But there's also work going on to try to develop a vaccine that will prevent the illness altogether. Jason Mason Lowe, a senior research fellow at the University of Auckland and also a Heart Foundation fellow, is working on two types of vaccine, and one might be able to be included in a teaspoon of yoghurt. We're targeting the group A pilus, which is this hair-like appendage that is on the surface of the bacteria. What it does um, is it helps the bacteria kind of stick to your throat, for example, um, and initiates the infection. And so that is our target for our vaccines. We're actually working on two vac- types of vaccines at the moment. Um, one is a protein-based uh, vaccine and the other one is looking at using a probiotic bacteria to express this pilus structure from group A strep um, as a more mucosal type vaccine. So one that could be administered orally, for example. She says they're now looking at clinical trials for the first protein-based vaccine. But the extent of the disease in New Zealand might also not be fully understood. Susan Jack is a senior lecturer at Otago University in preventative medicine and on a visit to the Wellington branch of the university she explained the difference between guidelines used here for detecting strep A 
and those used overseas. So in New Zealand we have a very high cut-off that we use for our strep testers to diagnose rheumatic fever. Um, and what we found was that although clinicians were diagnosing rheumatic fever accurately, often it wasn't meeting that high strep um, teta level. And we compared it with the Australian guidelines where they have a much lower and age-specific teta levels. Um, and that showed that if we used Australian cutoffs, we would actually have more rheumatic fever classified as definite cases. 20 to 40 cases of rheumatic heart disease are admitted to New Zealand hospitals every year without having a prior diagnosis of rheumatic fever. For Susan Jack, that's a clear sign that detection capabilities need to improve. We've got to get diagnosis um, improved. For rheumatic fever, we need to attack it at many different angles. Our rates are going up again in New Zealand, um, and so I think we need to look at a broad spectrum of... um, different things that we can do to improve the diagnosis and management and prevent most vulnerable people being affected by this disease. I'm Philippa Tolley and you're listening to an RNZ Insight programme about those struck by rheumatic fever and heart disease and those left behind. The Ministry of Health acknowledges its five-year campaign didn't achieve the results it was hoping for. The pitch for the $65 million project was to cut rheumatic fever cases by two-thirds, but it isn't clear why it didn't work. The Deputy Director of Public Health, Dr Nikki Stefanogiannis, says it was a hard programme to evaluate because it stretched across three strategies, awareness raising, the school-based sore throat clinics and the Healthy Homes Initiative, which works with pregnant women and low-income families with children under five. So how does the Ministry know what needs to be done next? Rheumatic fever is a complex condition. We do need to continue that comprehensive approach, getting that right mix between awareness raising, improving access to sorcery management, wherever that might be, whether that might be in primary care or some other definition of primary care, and also reducing that household transmission of the group A strep throat infection. So getting that right mix between those three strategies is quite tricky. Where we go next, we think it's really important to work with DHB's health providers and the communities to identify what they think will work best. Dr Stefano Gianna says they've learnt that what works well in one area may not work well in another, and that's why the research into the best approach or combination of approaches is so vital. In the meantime, some funding is going out to 11 DHBs to continue with a range of rheumatic fever work but Dr Stefano Giannis emphasises how important it is to have community buy-in with the programmes and for there to be local champions. It's very difficult. The Auckland region is so huge and um, the Pacific communities within the Auckland region, again, are quite um, diverse and variable and they're quite widespread in some areas. So, But it's a big task ahead. She acknowledges that housing issues, be it poor quality housing or overcrowding, is part of the problem but describes it as outside the scope of the Ministry of Health. A sense of how inequality is fueling this disease makes Professor Baker bristle. This is totally a disease of poverty. If you look at the distribution of rheumatic fever, it's absolutely a disease we shouldn't have. And the risk factor study that we're, we've just finished, it showed that the big drivers are poor housing and crowded housing and poor diet. 
poor living conditions are what Shield Priest believes were behind her rheumatic fever and subsequent rheumatic heart disease. Now living in the small Wairarapa town of Martinborough, she says the heart damage she's had to live with for more than four decades can be traced back to her childhood spent in Fiji's capital, Suva. We were a poor family and I was uh, living with my grandparents uh, at the time. Uh, it was a large family, so there were many of us sleeping in the same room. And, you know, food was scarce and all of that, and I think that generally the youngest tend to be the most vulnerable in those sorts of situations. She doesn't remember getting sick, but does recall a lot of noise and a lot of doctors around her, and thinks her illness was probably dismissed as a cold she would get over. I do remember uh, not being... um, conscious and then waking up and finding the doctor bending over me and uh, several people in the room and that was unusual because we just didn't normally have that many visitors and I remember the doctor saying you should have come to me earlier you know she's quite sick we can't move her now and so I had the luxury of spending uh, about a week in bed um, in the largest bed that we had uh, in the house Uh, all by myself, and I was very well well looked after after that. The disease damaged the valves in Shield's heart, which means they don't open and close properly, and her heart struggles to pump efficiently. She's been lucky to avoid heart surgery, but it's made a mark on her life. Playing sport hasn't really been an option for her, and when it came to start planning a family, she was told it would be too dangerous for her to get pregnant and give birth, although she did end up having two children. And those are the sorts of warnings and worries anyone who suffered rheumatic heart damage has to live with. But no figures are kept on how many people throughout New Zealand are affected. Andrew Aitken, a cardiologist at Wellington Hospital, sees patients every week whose hearts have been damaged by the disease. Rheumatic heart disease itself is not notifiable, and so collecting data about that is a little bit challenging. Um, There is some work being done right at this moment developing a rheumatic heart disease registry, which will help us, I guess, establish more what the burden is on not only on healthcare but on the economy. We know that around 150 to 200 people will die as a consequence of rheumatic heart disease on an annual basis, and approximately 600 to 800 people will be admitted per year, with their main problem being underlying rheumatic heart disease. So it's a significant burden um, on, on our healthcare service, for sure. And it's not just a question of being admitted to hospital. Many will also require heart surgery. But how many, Andrew Aitken explains, is somewhat unknown. We don't know exactly what proportion, but we certainly know that there are significant numbers who need surgery. We did a very small study ourselves here in Wellington looking at people um, between the ages of 15 and 25 who had been diagnosed with rheumatic fever in our Wellington area, and 20% of them had needed to have a, a major cardiac operation before the age of 25. And that's, that's a pretty significant um, you know, number in itself, not, not only for the burden on them at that time, but the expectation is that if they've had surgery at that age, that, that that's only the beginning of their journey, that they're going to have ongoing chronic health problems, and very likely a significant proportion of them will need to have further surgery in due course as well. And that treatment isn't cheap. Based on costs for last year, valve replacement surgery for a child, on average, costs more than $100,000. And the average daily cost for a stay in a cardiology ward for a child is $3,000. 
County's Manukau is currently the area with the highest number of cases of rheumatic fever and prevention programs are still active there. In recent months, church and community groups put on talks and dramas and performed rheumatic fever awareness songs, such as this one by a group from the Reformed Christian Church of Tuvalu. Matua Bates works with the local Pacific community, helping with education for the health organisation Alliance. It has a Ministry of Health contract to keep pushing the message about taking sore throats seriously. But even after years of health campaigns, many in her community don't realise how serious the consequences of a strep throat can be. People can have lots of information, but we live in an information-overloaded society, and so... I think there's a need for consistent reminders. A one-off blip isn't going to do it. County's Manukau DHB is one of those continuing to receive some ministry funding to support rheumatic fever prevention work, including a school-based throat-swabbing programme. Its public health physician, Dr Pip Anderson, says despite efforts in the past two years, the rates of rheumatic fever are going up. In a statement, she said there were questions over whether a change in the prevention programme had reduced its impact or whether other factors, such as the housing crisis, had overwhelmed the ability of the health system to reduce rates. Nulahia Palale is one of those who make up the rheumatic fever statistics for South Auckland. When she was 11, her family moved to Auckland from Tonga after her father's name was drawn in the annual ballot for residency in New Zealand. I was intermediate, I went to bed like they, the nurse and that came and they did the swap thing on my mouth. So they contacted my mum straight away, oh your daughter has this thing called rheumatic fever. With that, and my mum was already crying, she was like, what's going on? Like she was already feeling the worst. So they explained to me, we can help her, like not like the thing, prevent from the thing getting big. After the initial treatment, Lola here needed to have monthly injections for just over 10 years something she found hard. I was so really sick of the pain and everything, but then it was my mum that was pushing me. She was like, you have to go, you know, because I'm the only girl, and my mum was like, you know, we care about your life and everything. Obviously, you had to go through pain to be better. Lola here is now 23, and one of her heart valves is damaged because of rheumatic fever. Despite all the health education, she believes many in her community still don't understand the implications of what appears to be just a sore throat. Especially my culture, they just think, oh, it's a little thing, you know, you don't... And I talk to my family about it, my brothers, and when you have sore go to the doctor and get a check. Don't just take Panadol or drink this medicine to make it better, no. You don't know who you're going to ruin your life because of that, you know. And I've talked to my church too. Some of them are pretty surprised. Like, so a sore throat can cause a thing. Yes, a sore throat. It's pretty serious. Don't don't take it as a joke. This is a serious thing. That boy that passed away last year, because how the mum, he told the mum, mum has sore throat. The mum didn't really pay attention to him. Next thing you know, he's gone. And yeah, when when the lady from my church told me, I was like, see, like I want. People, especially Pacific Islander, wake up, you know. It's, this is a big thing, because once your kid is gone, you're going to sit there, why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? That programme was written and presented by me, Philip Tony.
Next week on Insight, RNZ's Taranaki reporter Robin Martin explores if new energy sources can replace the position fossil fuels play in the region's and New Zealand's economy. That's all from Insight for today. Lovely to have you with us. Ka kite anō.